Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Today's Kinney interview is with two water managers from American Samoa. I speak with Jason Jaskowiak and Will Spitzenberg, who are with the American Samoa Power Authority. Will is heading up the non-revenue water department, and he speaks about both institutional and technical approaches that American Samoa is taking in order to address some of the significant losses due to non-revenue water. And with Jason, I speak about protecting the shallow groundwater table and how he's addressing wastewater management in American Samoa. I hope that you'll learn a lot from these interviews. There are, as always, resource notes and uh, associated blog posts to go with these interviews. And with that, uh, my name is Karen Delfo, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Great. So, um... I'm going to start recording right now, and I'd like you guys just, if you wouldn't mind to just introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your background. Okay. I'm Jason Jeskowiak. I'm currently the wastewater chief at ASPA. I have a background in environmental and civil engineering, uh, degrees in both. I worked as a primary consultant for the Naval Facilities East and did a lot of work for the military. I've also worked as a private consultant in New York uh, and did consulting ranging from drinking water, storm water, to um, remediation work. And now I am here. I've been here about three years. Will? Yeah, my name is Will Spitzenberg. I am the uh, chief water engineer here at ESPO. I've been here almost four years now, uh, about three and a half. And my background is in civil engineering. I have a master's degree in environmental engineering as well, in civil engineering. I've worked in public works type projects, including water, sewer, roadways. Also done uh, dam design with the Bureau of Reclamation before I moved down here to American Samoa. We were talking about yeah. uh, water loss and and, um, and non-revenue water and the ways that American Samoa has been very effective in dealing with this issue, which is a tremendous issue throughout the Asia-Pacific and really, I think, throughout the world. Um, you had mentioned that there's approximately 60% of water that's being lost within the system to either leaks, um, to people tapping into the system and not paying for the water, stealing water, um, and also just generally, I guess, with um, issues around not being able to accurately meter the water that's coming out of the system. Can we talk about the old system and the pipes and the gaskets and what's happening with that? Sure. So we have uh, about 150 miles of water mains in the system and about 150 miles of service laterals in our system. So majority of the system was put in back in the uh, early 1900s by the, by the Navy when they were here. And we're still using those pipes now, and the majority of them are actually leaking and causing uh, high leakage rates in our system. The asbestos cement pipes were installed around 1950, 1960 timeframe, 
those are the ones that we're finding the most leaks at the joints now. So they, they're, the lengths are about 12 to 13 feet long. So every 12, 13 feet, we find a joint. And as we repair a leak on that joint, later on we come back to redo the leak detection survey, we find leaks on another joint in the same pipe. So uh, it becomes a challenge every time we shut down the system to repair a leak, and then we repressurize the system, it creates more leaks in the old pipes. So it's an ongoing problem for us, and as we try to, we, we do have two leak detection crew in-house. It does the goal, they follow the, uh, the as-built, and then they listen along the line to find leaks. They report that in, and then we have a construction crew that comes uh, immediately after, maybe a day or two, to come and repair the leaks that they find. What kind of devices? It's called acoustic leak detection. Yeah, like the Jason was saying, they look like guys out in the, in the beach looking for, for treasure. Most of our pipes are under the road. The main lines are under the road, so uh, usually better to do the leak detection at night because of traffic in the morning. So sometimes we have to, certain areas, we have to work at night, do leak detection. The other two guys, when they go out to uh, villages, they do just a house-to-house -house survey, and they check and make sure all the meters are working. Uh, if there's meters they find that are either buried or are not working properly, they replace those meters. And, of course, they occasionally find illegal connections where families are tapping to the water without a meter. And we do uh, we call that in, and we do find that, that customer's account on the electric side. Uh, and the minimum fine is $1,000. And if they do ask us for reconnection, they, they're required to put in a backflow preventer before we can put in a, a new meter, uh, put back a, a water meter. So the ASPA is both a water agency and an electric agency. All the utilities are combined within the, the agency. Is that correct? We take care of electric, water, uh, wastewater, and solid waste. I think that that's a really interesting model to have, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how that works and some of the benefits of being able to have all the different utilities together, in a sense, under one roof. Yeah, the, the benefits for us is uh, mainly for billing. Like, it's all we have just one customer service. They take care of all of our billing, and you, you get one bill from us, including all the utilities. So the customers get to just come to one location to pay for the bill. And if there's issues, they, they, you know, with any of the utilities, they do just have to come to one location also. And also, we get to share resources, uh, like wastewater and water. We have engineers in both, so we help each other out. And if there's issues with, uh, with our, our, our motors or electric, on the electric side, we also have engineers on the power side that come out and help us out. And I would think also for the process of having to do construction in order to re repair the joints or fix the leaks, having all the agencies being able to work together would eliminate some of the normal bureaucratic chaos that would ensue in just really having to dig up roads all the time or, you know, knowing where all the other utility pipes are located, that that sort of thing would be really beneficial as well. That's correct, yes. You've also spoken about the use of uh, mag meters and other meters in order to be able to manage the production and pressures. And I'm hoping you can tell us quite a bit more about that and what kind of meters um, have been most effective and, and the process that American Samoa is going through to replace a lot of those meters. Yeah, we, we've been replacing the old system we, we have with mag meters and VFDs. What they do is we can actually control the flow from the production wells as well as control the pressure in the system to help kind of 
uh, alleviate the problem with water hammering if there's too much fluctuation in the pressure, which causes uh, leaks, even more leaks in the system. So EPA has been funding that project. We're about uh, halfway done with replacing uh, meters in our 52 wells that we have here on, in American Samoa. And we've actually targeted the highest producing wells first. So those ones are done. Now we're trying to go out and get the ones with the lower producing wells in the system. So it's been uh, actually been saving us both on uh, on the water side as well as on the electric side because the VFDs is actually make uh, save us money on the electric side as well. So it's a variable frequency drive. Some areas they call them VSD, uh, varying speed drive, something like that. So the the way they work, if you set it at a perimeter, lower it says, okay, I don't want I want this uh, this motor to uh, speed up if it if it drops to if the pressure drops to a certain point, like say thirty. 30 psi. Yeah. Okay, I want it to wake up. If it drops, if it, go, if it goes over uh, 50 psi, then I want it to, the motor to go to sleep. So it'll sense the pressure in the system and it'll control the motor and say, okay, we've got enough pressure in the system. Go ahead and go to sleep. And if it says, oh, we need more pressure in the system, and then it'll 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 increase the flow, the pumping rate. Great, and the pressure in the system is determined probably both by the well itself, but also by the the use. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. And how, how do these, uh, I'm, I'm also thinking maybe that this, this kind of a system would support um, the need to really reduce and shut down pressure when you're doing repairs. And maybe does possibly this, this sort of um, system also support, because earlier you had spoken about when you have to do a repair, you have to reduce the pressure. And then when you put the pressure back into the system, you identify that there's a whole bunch of other leaks that are created as a consequence, and I'm wondering if this you can use this pressure regulation system in order to hopefully not have that happen as frequently. Would that be possible, or no? Yeah, for certain for certain areas where we can isolate the section of pipe that we're working on, so we just shut a valve and not the entire system. So the pressure on the on the on the pumps and the BFD will sense that that the pressure is increased because the valve is closed. So it'll slow down the uh, the motor. Um, the problem is, once we open that valve back up and we repair the leak, and now the pipe that was empty, it's an old pipe, an AC pipe, now you introduce more water hammer in that pipe and it creates leaks on the joints uh, along the line. And those leaks don't surface. I mean, that's the crazy thing here. I mean, we have all this water loss and we don't see much of it coming up on the road or on the side, on the surface. We actually have to go out with these guys and try to listen and find where the leaks are. And the majority of the leaks, even we found leaks that are like 200 gallons a minute and it didn't even surface. It's just going right, right into the lava, lava rock. And the pipes are buried about four to five feet deep. So it's a challenge for us. We wish we, the, the water would just come on on surface so we could say, oh, there's a leak there, but it's not that easy. You mentioned uh, a number of how much it would actually cost in order to replace all the pipes and get the infrastructure up to speed um, for this the system, and that was $100 million. I'm going to jump in here with a quick correction, and that is that the $100 million budget will replace all 32 miles of AC pipe and about 150 miles of the HDPE pipes. Well, the $100 million is just to replace the old AC pipe. We still got issues with the HDPE pipe that we have to replace, and that's going to cost another $100 million on top of that to do 50 miles of it, 150 miles, yeah. And when you do replace the pipes, what materials do you put in there? Well, right now we're just using PVC. 
how long do you think the PVC pipes are going to last? Oh, we estimate at least 50 years. They've come out with the brand new, uh, new. I don't know if it's brand new, but it, it's been used in New Zealand and other areas. There's a PVC O. It's, uh, it's actually better than the PVC that we've been using in the past. So we're, we're going to that direction. And I would also imagine that it has to do with the, the sort of insulation that's provided around the pipe in order to buffer it from, you know, any shocks or anything like that. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. Right, the bedding has to be uh, is correct. So the main issues that you guys have around, or the main, I guess, solutions that you've been implementing in order to address leaks are, number one, having these in-house leak detection groups um, of four people, two going to the household and two out listening, um, having a very quick response time with the construction crew to be able to go in and fix the leak as soon as they hear it. Um, you had mentioned it's within 24 hours, is that correct? As best we can, if not 48 hours. If not 48 yeah, hours. Yeah, within 24 hours. And when that happens, you shut down the system so there's a certain district or a certain area will not receive water over that, the course of that time. And how has it been in communicating this with the community? Have they um, been receptive to understanding this? Because I, I could imagine that if you don't see the leaks, you're, you would get frustrated because you're saying, what are these guys doing all the time? Right. Yeah, it's, uh, we've, we've got, they've, uh, our customer service people have been getting some uh, not-so-nice phone calls when we, <laughs> when we shut the water off, but they are aware, and we do have a public outreach where we, on, our, on the radio, we just announce to people that, you know, there's, there's, uh, we have an old system, if you, and then also we ask them if they see any, any or find any leaks along their system or on the road to call it in. So they're understanding uh, we try to get the water back on within four hours, no more than that. That's the target for us. That's uh, fast. Sometimes we get it in around six hours. Yeah, but the, but the target for us is to get it back online within four hours. And so we've been trying our best to meet that target. And do you find that some of the community members do call in the leaks um, on a regular basis? Yes, the ones that they can see on the service lines, they, they call those in because those are shallow, so... They're not buried as deep as the main line. When they see it, they do call it in. And we have also, we have two contractors, plumbing contractors, uh, that ESPA is hired to help us out with the leak repair. So the island is divided in half. One covers the east and one covers the west. So most of those calls are from customers, and then we send those uh, contract contractors, the plumbers, to go out and fix those leaks. That's great. So if, um, if other people or other agencies in the in the Pacific region would be interested in possibly uh, taking some of the approaches that you've had to addressing non-revenue water, what, where's the low-hanging fruit? Where do you think that people could just easily implement with maybe a lower cost, something that would, based on your experience, have a pretty strong impact in terms of water loss? I think data would be very, very important. They can uh, first go out and do uh, subdivide the system Okay. Into subsections, I think that 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 would be. Uh, I mean, I would that would be the first thing I do is try to understand where the water is coming from and which area it feeds, and then see if you can uh, subdivide it even further into smaller areas, and then do a water balance um, using the AWWA water balance spreadsheet that I told you about, uh, or I think PWA has one similar to it. Uh, they can just run a water water balance and then subdivide the areas into smaller and smaller areas, and then they can narrow down the area to where they think the water is going. And by subdividing, you're and talking about putting in control valves along the way so that you can really just isolate specific 
subsections of the system? First, they will look at the map and try to subdivide it on the map based on information that they have, and then they can go out and test it by closing valves and seeing what happens to the pressure along the, along the line if you close a valve, and then uh, opening the valve to make sure that this area serves a certain area. Mm-hmm. And then um, when the money comes along, then they can start installing uh, inline meters like what we're doing. Uh, we're installing inline meters to kind of get more information. So the inline meters will collect the, uh, a flow every hour. So that helps us see if the, if the flow going to this area is increasing or if it's decreasing. Or, and then it will tell us that this is how much water is going to this area. But since we already know that in that area there's so many customers in there and this is how much they're using per month or per day, then we can say, okay, this is we take that out and then we know, okay, this is how much water we're losing here. And then we send our leak detection crew in there to try to find where the water is going. But first, you must have good, some good information, a good collection of data that you have to help you subdivide them to do the smaller DNAs. Yeah, it sounds like having a really good baseline is key. And the water balance will help you get to that point. I don't know if everybody has their customer's meter. That would be important. <laughs> Each customer must have a meter. Otherwise, it would be hard to, uh, to do this. Are there meters that you would recommend that are you know, easy to install, inexpensive, um, any specific meters that you found to be great that would be easy for other countries to, uh, to look into getting? The one we're using now is a smart meter. It's an iPro. And the reason why we like it is because you can actually download the data and it collects every hour. So we'd like to see what the usage is. It's a little bit more expensive than the old type meters, but I think it's worth it. Uh, the investment will be will pay off itself in in a few years. So there must be somebody who's back at um, at ASPA who's collecting all this data and can sort of notice. Hey, hang on a second! All of a sudden, we're having spikes in this area. Um, yeah, we have a non-revenue team. Leak detection is part of that team, and then there's there's a couple of guys that just go out uh, every week and download the data from our inline meters, and then from uh, the iPearls. We're also looking at uh, using AMI where we can just have everything connected to the network and then they, it sends us information um, and then we can look at it real time. That's in, that's in the works right now. It's, uh, it's more expensive. It's the next step to where we're at now. But what does start, AMI uh, stand for? So Census, census uh, they, they do all this stuff. They're the ones that make the iPro. Uh-huh. And they, have, they also have an AMI system where they can help you install these and they'll collect the data from all these meters, advanced metering infrastructure. And you can see it real time on SCADA or, or on some program online that you can just open up and say, okay, this is how much water is going to this area and this is how much consumers are using so the difference be worth the rest of the water going. And then if you see an increase in that area, then you can send that and then you can say, okay, there's a leak here. Then your leak detection crew can be deployed over there and say, hey, go find the leak. And it kind of helps when the areas are smaller. Yeah, because then you can isolate it down a lot more and probably inconvenience fewer people yeah. when you need to make any repairs. Yeah. So and you can find the leak faster. Too. You can find the leak faster? Yeah, faster with smaller areas. Rather than trying to look for leaks on a few miles of pipe, if we can narrow it down to a couple of miles or even a mile of pipeline, that'll help us get it done a lot faster. So your non-revenue water department... Um, has the the teams that go out, and then you also have the sort of data teams. Are there other teams within the the department? Yeah, so, well, we do have we do have our meter readers. They go out once a month and read the meters from the customers. Um, and that one, we're trying to phase we're trying to phase that out with the AMI, which is the next step. 
but that's how we're doing it now is every month they go out and read the meters. All production meters, all of our customer meters, they just have to manually read them. And that information comes in on a monthly basis. On the ones that we have inline meters now, our, our crew goes out and the mag meters, we, we pull the data every week or so, and then we can see that, uh, we, we analyze it and see where, where the issues are. I'm wondering if the smart meters iPro, uh, if these meters also uh, monitor, I guess they would monitor, of course, water that's being used within a household or business, but do they also monitor wastewater, electricity, any other sort of metering issues at the same time? Well, Census also has a meter for the electric side, but not, uh, iPro just, it just reads how much water they're using. Great. So there's the, so there's the water the meter readers, in addition to the leak detection teams and the data people, are there are there any other parts of the uh, non-revenue water department? Well, the construction crew helps. Uh, they come out come out and repair repair the leaks. Okay, so this is such this is really such a, a major issue that there's a construction crew that's dedicated specifically to this department. Is that correct? Oh, sorry, no. The construction crew has is under a different department, but they're actually they work together with the non-revenue crew. Once the leaks are reported in. Our repair construction repair crew goes out and, and repairs a leak. And also, I'm wondering because I'm, I'm thinking about other, um, maybe other agencies that would really be interested in setting up a non-revenue water department to deal with this issue. And then I'm also wondering if, although it sounds like this is sort of a non-ending uphill battle, if you've been able to through the um, the AWWA water balance sheet or the PWWA water balance sheet see any changes. Yes, we've seen improvement in non-revenue uh, in areas where we focused. Uh, we've got one, we've narrowed one area down. Uh, we've been focused on in the past couple of months. We were able to reduce the water loss there from uh, over 150 gallons a minute to 50 gallons a minute now. Uh, we're still working with the crew to try to find out where the rest of that water is going. Uh, but uh, it really helped with the inline meter there, so we were able to see a trend on, on the usage as well as where the water was going. Uh, the leak detection crew was able to find a leak on the main line. Uh, they estimated about 80 gallons a minute was going to that leak. And the crew, construction crew repaired it, and then we checked the data, and it's reduced that flow uh, tremendously. So uh, it does help a lot, uh, focusing in on the data and analyzing it, making sure you're, you're following through with it. And it's an ongoing thing. It's not, I mean, non-revenue is going to be a continuous thing. You have to continuously be on top of it. You can't just hire an off-island or a contractor to come down and do the detection one time and then disappear because it's going to come back. And these um, the detection units that the field crews use, the, the, I'm picturing these little like metal detector-like things. Um, how, how much do those units cost, and uh, are they... Are they easy to come across? Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining also logistics of getting units like that uh, from wherever they're being manufactured into a department. Um, where do they come from? Yeah, yeah, there you can buy them from everywhere. They're they're uh, available from different companies throughout the world, mm -hmm. uh, from the U.S., some from New Zealand, Australia, Germany. There's there's uh, enough information out there. I mean, anyone could look online and get the. The data we can we can even share what we use here. They're kind of expensive, uh, depending on the model you get. You could pay up to twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a unit. But it sounds but, like uh, compared to the uh, the high end options you were talking about earlier, it's still quite affordable. Right, compared 
Right, compared to hiring an uh, a actual leak detection uh, from off from uh, off island somewhere, it's going to be way more expensive. So I think it's a well uh, the, the investment is well worth it. Yeah, and once you have them, I mean, the, yeah, exactly. They're not going to go away. You can use them for right. not, not forever, but for a really long time. And are they are they fairly easy yeah. to learn how to use? Yeah, yeah. You just have to get the guys trained, and uh, and they can pick it up. The key to this is you have to have a dedicated non-revenue team to work on this. You can't like keep just do this for one month and then forget about it and come back next year. It has to be an ongoing. It has to be a dedicated team to do to focus on the issue. So um, just, uh, again, for, for other, other authorities or agencies who are looking, utilities that are looking to implement a similar pro project, I want to kind of summarize all the recommendations that you've provided. You've, you've spoken about the necessity of subdividing the system into subsections in order to have really good data to be able to focus and target your, your efforts. Um, doing the water balance, the AWWA or PWA water balance Spreadsheet is going to be key also to really getting a grasp, um, knowing possibly like with the inline meters collecting flow every hour and implementing meters at the household level um, and, and really just meters as, as much as you possibly can that are suitable for each of the parts of the system. Um, and, and then it sounds like having a team, a dedicated ongoing effort that is taking non-revenue water uh, as an ongoing issue that needs to be addressed and not just something that you can come in, solve, and then walk away from is uh, also really, really critical. Right. Yes, that's, that's, that's correct. Uh, are there any other recommendations based on your experience that you would be able to share? Yeah, just don't give up on non-revenue. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite frustrating. It's quite frustrating to, uh, to work on this and then uh, go, b go back to an area and find that the, the losses have gone up again. Uh, so it's it's an ongoing thing. You just got to keep at it, especially if you have an old system. Uh, I mean, uh, short short of replacing the entire system because of money issues, you just got to keep at it. Yeah, and I, I think that's actually a really interesting point is to understand that, look, sometimes it's going to get worse. If anyone has any questions for you or would like some additional information, what's the best way to reach you in your department? Yeah, by email. or Yeah, I think email is fine or give me a call. Great, and I, I guess the uh, the kind of last closing question that I normally ask, it's, it sort of covers this, but let's say that uh, let's say that somebody is listening to this interview and is really excited about you know addressing non-revenue water and has some new ideas or some new approaches, um, or just really would like to get involved in this area, even though it sounds like it's, although it's rewarding on one side and so important, it's also incredibly frustrating. What would you suggest for people who are interested in in um, in getting involved more, uh, maybe new professionals or um, people getting out of university who would like to? learn more about non-revenue water and get more involved in uh, the work that you do, what would you recommend for them? I would, I would recommend going down to your local water department and just uh, just ask them and get information on what the non-revenue is like and see if you can get some experience with them. I think it's going to be a growing area where it's going to need a lot of help moving forward. Water is an issue everywhere, so uh, just producing more water is not uh, the best solution. I think if you go to a lot of the utilities, all of them are actually losing water so saving that water that's being lost is, is a better option than trying to build new infrastructure to filter water or because a lot of the utilities even in the US are losing 40% of the water 
and they're trying to build these new sources. But if you just uh, focus back on saving the water you're already producing, I think that'll be uh, 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 the way to go, save money and also save resources. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It's it, I actually think I'm going to, um, when I get back home, I'm going to go to my utility and ask them uh, what they're doing to address leaks and, and learn a little bit more about that because it's true. It's right. it, it's a huge issue that I think maybe doesn't always get to the surface because it is such a difficult challenge to tackle. But when you do have up to 60% of your water source getting lost to non-revenue water, um, that's that's a lot. That is a lot of water. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yeah, we estimated, I think if you do that uh, water audit, uh, PWWA water audit or balance sheet, it will actually tell you how much money you're wasting based on the water you're losing. And uh, it's, you'll be shocked to see how much money that is every year you're losing because the water is going somewhere where you don't know or the non-revenue water. Is, um, is uh, American Samoa a uh, groundwater catchment for the most part? Yeah, for the most part, we get 99% of our water from groundwater. Is it at all possible, I'm just trying to be hopeful, I know that there's a lot of energy loss in pumping up the water, but is it hopeful that a lot of the non-revenue water that is being lost in the system might be going back into the groundwater? Yes. Yes, this is just a little <laughs> silver lining here, this is good. So there's a little joke in our group that says, hey, we're just pumping the water back into the ground. At least in a sense, it's, it's staying within the... Uh, the water supply catchment, I'm hoping some of it is. Very, very expensive recharge water. Oh my God. And also just uh, around public awareness of um, water that's being taken out of the system and not paid for, is there, are there ways that, uh, that ASPA is tackling, I guess, um, that issue? Because I can see that a lot of people are probably thinking, well, other than that $1,000 fine that I might possibly get if they catch me, uh, really, I'm getting some pretty good water right now, and um, a lot of that is just turning the tide and, and making people understand that that's just not acceptable. And I'm wondering if if there have been any campaigns um, coming out of ASPA that have been really effective yeah. that you could share. Yes, we've been on the radio with our, our local radio, and they most people you like to listen to the radio, so that's kind of the best, best uh, way for us to get the word out. And people have been calling in. Uh, reporting people that are using cost connection because there's also village water that's available and uh, sometimes they have both uh, aspa water and village water so we, we just announce it on the radio and tell people that it's not you know it's not safe to combine the two and people do call in and report that and then we also uh, have a facebook page that we have uh, we publish stuff on that helps get the word out we're also working on i think now management's working on a commercial they asked me and Jason to take part on <laughs> get, uh, get together for, for uh, outreach, I guess. So, yeah, it helps to get the word out, and, and, and the people will be receptive to it. Yeah, I think uh, building awareness and having people understand what a huge issue this is for sustainable water supply in the long term is going to be really important. So it's great that you guys are... I'm. I'm hoping that we can share this commercial on uh, Kinney once it's available because it's true. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to reach out to others. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you and um, learning a lot about non-revenue water and how it can be addressed in the context of American Samoa. And thank you for making yourself available to answer questions to others who may have questions about this issue. Yeah, no problem. 
I think uh, we've done a, a lot of. There's a lot of advancement too on on a wastewater side. If that's that's any, if that's of interest to you, Jason is, is the guy to talk to. He's got some good stuff going for us here. Yeah, the, the PWWA never talks about wastewater. Nobody wants to think about it. Let's talk about it. Well, in American Samoa, we are one of the few places in the United States that, that still has a waiver for secondary treatment. So we actually only have primary wastewater treatment. We did recently uh, install two UV reactors. So we have a UV reactor at each of our wastewater treatment plants now. So we are providing disinfection, whereas a year ago there was no disinfection for our wastewater. Certainly our challenges with bringing such a, a new system and technology to the island uh, and considering that these systems are very often used with secondary treatment, um, it results in us doing a lot of maintenance and cleaning of the system, um, which presents difficulties as well as our electric bills. But we are meeting our standards, and we um, have seen a great improvement on our bacteria levels that are going out to the ocean. We have, since I've come on at ASPA, I have modified um, their on-site treatment. So we have sewer collection systems, but mo the majority of our uh, population uses on-site or septic tanks. Well, we would like them to be on septic tanks. Traditionally, they just use cesspools, which is essentially just a hole in the ground where the toilets go to. Um, doesn't provide any containment or treatment. So we are implementing assistance for, for the community on, on designing and installing septic systems. Um, we, we tell the family owners how to build it, and then while they're building it, we come out to the site four, three to four times and inspect it and uh, lend assistance to make sure that they're constructed properly. Um, we've also changed the way people, well, the engineering side thinks about septic systems. Typically on in the U.S. mainland, you're more mostly concerned about your infiltration rates being too slow, so your wastewater is not going to go into the ground fast enough and you're going to have a, a backup. Well, yeah. here, uh, the water goes away very, very fast. So most engineers came down here thinking, great, I can put septic systems everywhere. Um, unfortunately, that, that, that water is going away way too fast and it, it's not receiving the microbial treatment it should and it's entering our aquifers. Uh, so you have nitrogen and potentially E. coli that could be contaminating the water. So what we've done is change the way we install the systems and deliberately create a barrier uh, underneath where the leach field is. So we, we put down some materials and compact it so it retains the water and we get a percolation rate of what we want and it's slow enough to then um, inhibit the growth of a biofilm and get treatment for those on-site systems. I'm, I'm um, guessing that this comes at a, an additional cost because if you're having to engineer it for infiltration when you're building a septic... I mean, first of all, septic systems aren't super cheap to implement, so it's great that you guys are supporting communities in doing that. We are taking the cost for systems that are next to water resources. But any new home... This is for old homes near water resources, I guess, to be very clear when I say that. Uh, customers jump on me. So if you're building a new construction, it's the homeowner's responsibility. They have to pay for it. Um, we're working with the local banks to make sure that people have that in the design when they take out a loan so they're prepared financially. Um, 
But if the person, if it's an old house with a with a bad system that's contaminating the groundwater or the stream, we uh, we go out and replace that cesspool with a septic system on when that's funded by the EPA. Um, and yes, the cost to put in this, these systems where we are going down, digging deeper, and, and creating a barrier is higher yeah. uh, because we're, we're digging more. We're bringing in special material, and then we're compacting that material. So there's the time and materials um, is really what it is. Um, and, and we're continuously working to expand our sewer system. And we are just recently, I'm, I've redesigned one of our treatment plants. This is on paper only now um, to implement secondary treatment once we, have, we identify funding to do that. So can we just back up a little bit and talk about um, the maybe the number of households or the population that you're trying to sort out wastewater issues for? What percentage you would estimate to be on sewerage systems where it is going to treatment facility? How many people or what percentage you would estimate now is having a proper septic system in place? And what is the last sort of percentage of people that you're needing to uh get at those cesspools and, and develop some sort of alternative system for? I think uh, my last estimate was 40% of people are on sewer. And then of the remaining 60, how many are on septic and how many are on cesspool? I would say 30% have septic, proper septic tanks and the rest have cesspools. Mm. That, may be, that may be a little low. I, uh, I would have to... It's difficult to collect that data. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a survey done um, by our public works and our EPA here, um, but our just a cursory, cursory review of that survey, um, they just showed us that it was completely inaccurate. Those guys didn't know what they were doing, and so there, there hasn't been a very good survey done. You were talking about putting in secondary um, treatment into some of the wastewater treatment facilities. Mm-hmm. And um, identifying, you know, what the cost is going to be for that. And I think also it's interesting because you talk about UV and um, that's it's, it's like you're skipping a whole step, right? <laughs> you're going from primary just straight to UV. It's, um, it's interesting. And, and I'm wondering if that's been, I guess, maybe effective for achieving the water quality objectives that you're going for in terms of discharge. And, um, and if it has, then, you know, is, is, that, is that your secondary system? Well, right now we do meet all of our permit requirements now that we have the UV in. We, we, we had major exceedances with regards to bacteria and E. coli. Yep. Enterococci, actually. Enterococci is the, the bacteria that survives better in salt water. But anyway, um, now that we have the UV in place, we meet all our permit levels and we meet those bacteriological levels. Um, the secondary treatment design was that came out of we're one of the few waivers left everyone's getting their waivers taken away yes um and aspa had hired a contractor about five years ago to come in and do an assessment and the contractor just told aspa that the only way they can do it is with fine bubble diffusion and it's going to cost 80 million dollars and there was just, um, I think they were pushing their product. I wasn't here then, but 
but it was a very, very poor evaluation. They didn't consider a lot of options, and they weren't being innovative, and they weren't considering the limitations and the cost of electricity here. Um, so I guess I just kind of saw it as a challenge and sat down and figured it out in a much more easy, easily operated and cheaper way, um, and that's using our existing infrastructure and just modifying it with um, with the addition of some screening up front in our system, and that's the key, is to use screening, um, two stages of screening to replace primary clarification, and then using those existing primary clarifiers for biological treatment and secondary clarification. Yep. So when you talk about these two stages of screening, I'm, I'm imagining actual physical screens that you put in. That's correct. And then you would have some sort of, yeah, so you'd have waste stream separation as the waste is entering into the facility with the two stages of screening. Um, and then would you treat both of those waste streams with, with, the, with the biologically? Yeah, so it's just one waste stream. So it'll come in, and we've actually already have per begun purchasing the first stage of screen, which is called a step screen. Um, has about a half inch opening, and all the wastewater then goes through that screen. So the second stage is something we have not um, funded yet, um, and we we probably won't until our waiver is. We think our waiver is going to be removed, but at that time, then we can just purchase the secondary screens and implement our secondary treatment. Um, but the second stage of screening would be even finer. So it takes the, the first stage is, is a half inch gap. Um, and then the second stage will be even finer, it'll be like a drum screen, and provide even a better effluent. And then all of that effluent would then go um, into a trickling filter, potentially um, an MVBR, which, which is basically a trickling filter that's still full of water. Um, I, I, I have a lot of people, I, I don't know, I'm debating on that. I don't like that idea because it requires more energy and a little more maintenance and blowers and things like that. So what we're looking at is going through the screening process, biological treatment through a trickling filter, and then using our existing clarifiers um, to clarify that, that secondary effluent. Then into the, the UV reactors, and out, and that should be a permitted secondary. Do the screens actually function to break down the material? They clean themselves. Okay. So a step screen is, is basically an escalator, almost exactly. <laughs> it looks like an escalator, but it's much smaller, yep. uh, and the gaps are a little bit bigger. Um, so it's constantly moving, and then as it rolls around, it cleans itself. There's other, you know, there's a lot of different screens that function differently, but... But they just really just break um, down the material and then self-clean. So that's fantastic. I do look for, with any machinery we purchase here, I mean, there are certain things I, people want I just refuse to buy because hydraulics and certain bearings and things we can't maintain and I will not spend money and, and have everything rusting in a junkyard because we can't maintain it. So we, we try to have as simple of a machine as possible and... You know, having everything that's 316 stainless steel that's been pickled uh, to prevent corrosion because, you know, these are areas that are near the ocean and you can go out to there and you just, if you run your hand down the, any wall, you'll, you'll have a handful of salt. Yeah. Um, so it, that's a huge challenge 
um, also a huge challenge for our, our UV systems because our UV systems have a lot of electronics, obviously, and um, they have to have temperature control. So we have three air conditioning units, and it's been eight months, and, and the, the, the exterior portion of those units are almost completely deteriorated. <gasps> so we're trying to just to battle that, find products to spray on them and, and new ways to keep them functioning. But so it's all, in, in every situation here, it's a battle against the salt and the corrosive uh, environment. Do you think that with uh, the secondary treatment that you're planning, you will even need to have the UV treatment before discharge into the ocean? Because it seems like, it, to me, it seems like the, the UV treatment is allowing you to kind of navigate around the secondary treatment at the moment. Um, but it also sounds like it has a much higher energy cost. And with these AC units corroding, it's just, um, I'm just wondering if with the secondary treatment in place, if you think that the, the UV treatment is going to be necessary in order to meet your permit requirements. Yes, it will be necessary. Um, hopefully we'll have less maintenance because there'll be a higher quality of water that's passing oh, yeah, through them. Yeah. So we won't have, yeah, we clean each UV bank so we have, so there's one reactor that has four different banks of UV bulbs, and we clean each bank uh, once a week. Essentially, once a day, we're we're having to pull one up one, each day and clean it. Clean it out. Um, and that you know that's that's a bit of a labor cost. So that should be reduced, but we will still need it to reduce the bacteriological. Almost every wastewater treatment plant disinfects effluent. Most places use chlorine, but in a, in an environment like in an environment like we live, UV is is very common because when you're discharging to an environment with corals and endangered species, you have to meet a very strict regulation on how much residual chlorine is left. So if you're using chlorine, what you end up having to do is use it. Um, make sure it contacts the water for X amount of time and then remove it before yeah. you discharge. And recently, EPA um, just increased uh, how strict that, that rule is on uh, how much chlorine can be discharged. In hindsight, the UV may have been a better choice than I originally thought. It achieves a disinfection without adding anything to the water, essentially. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about uh, the application of... The, the learning that you've gone through in terms of wastewater uh, processing that other countries in the Pacific might be able to apply in their context. Is there anything that really jumps to mind? I think both from the side of, um, of the septic systems and also from just the process that you've dis discussed for the primary secondary treatment. Yeah, from my conversations with people, they, everybody could use a lot of help with the on-site systems and improving the on-site systems. There aren't a lot of uh, centralized systems, but yeah, I think that people need to understand how the septic system's working and what you're relying on for treatment a little bit better um, so they can protect the groundwater essentially better. Um, with regards to wastewater treatment plants, I think that it's just a lack of expertise to be able to look at what's there and innovate it to get better treatment. It's difficult, just the lack of skill set. I think on-site is one of the biggest things that 
can help other agencies right now. Just from my conversations, you know, with the organization, you know, talking to people in uh, Tonga and Canberra. Yeah, well, just from my conversation, I think on-site would be the best for people, and uh, I think that's the most most commonly used. So I think they need to look at at how they're installing them and make sure they're they're protecting the groundwater. And also establish a way to force people to do it. <laughs> and that's not easy or certainly gets me screamed at a couple times a month. But they need, you know, the way we enforce it is we don't give you, because we handle power and water, we don't give you water and power until you have the proper set. So you can't, so people will come in if they're building a house and they can get a temporary permit because obviously you can't build anything without some power. So we'll give them a temporary permit for, water to use for concrete and electricity to build their home, but we will not give them a permanent hookup until we have inspected and approved their septic system. And this stops people from building new cesspools. Yes. And then again, that comes in where we help with the design and we help with inspecting it. So we come out during all the stages of the installation, make sure it's watertight, make sure the leach field is level, uh, it's going to function properly. So I think that's uh, something other other nations can benefit from. There's a sequence of steps that you need to follow, and being able to support people and going through that process would make it just, I think, so much easier for them to tackle. The change from what they normally do, to yeah. change what they're used to. So when, when they have to do it, they go, you know, they get upset. Why do I have to do this? We've been doing it our way for a hundred years, and it's definitely a, a you know, a public outreach sort of thing. You have to explain how important it is. But when it comes to spending money, people don't really, at the end of the day, don't care about how important it is if it's coming out of their pocket. And I'm guessing that your department does not provide any, other than technical assistance, any subsidies to support the development of these septic systems? No, only for one, only for the systems that are near uh, water, water resources. Yeah. In order to do those inspections, I was just going to say it's um, it's probably not, as long as there's staffing available to do something like that, it's probably not too difficult to provide that support to the community as they're going through the process of developing their home. Um, and would that be an accurate assessment of the situation? Or Well, we have staff members that are full-time um, deal with that. Okay. One to, one, one to two staff members are dealing with that full-time each week. It sounds like the, the, the public awareness of the importance of having, in particular, next to sensitive water areas having septic system or some sort of responsible treatment um, yeah. is going to also be and really the maintenance. Yeah, the maintenance is also a huge issue. Especially, you know, I run into the problem where we will give somebody a system if they live near a well or a stream, and they'll be back three years later screaming at me that, you know, we did it wrong, and it's because they're dumping as much grease as they possibly can down the system or Q-tips and dental floss and... Everything we told them not to do. Um, so communicating that how important it is and how costly it will be to them if they don't maintain the system properly is, is a big thing as well. You know, we've produced many, many flyers, and we try to talk to the people every time we install it. But it's, it's an uphill battle with that one. Uh, how often do you recommend that people pump out their system? Well, here in a, well here's another thing we provide. Uh, we provide a free pumping once a year, but I don't recommend, and that's too frequently. And here maybe it's okay because people misuse the system, um, but really every three to five years is all it uses, and that's plenty. 
Um, there are plenty of people that go 10 years. Um, but so I would recommend three to five years. Yeah. Year. But effectively, your ASPO will come around and pump it every year. It's interesting to think about that not being the optimal way to maintain the system either. Because you do have to like put the bacteria back in once you've pumped it out. So, all right. Uh, that happens naturally. There's plenty of bacteria. Um, they've always marketed products like that. Some people say put yeast in it. Some people sell specific products, blah, blah, blah. If you have a typical septic system, there's plenty of bacteria going in there already. There are caveats. You know, if you're using, you know, just make sure you're, you're, you're taking care of it appropriately. If you're pumping it out all the time, it, you know, maybe covering up things that you're doing that you shouldn't, especially things like baby wipes and all, and all sorts of things that aren't supposed to go. Harsh chemicals shouldn't go down the, into the septic system. Um, so, but if you take care of it the right way, yeah, three to five years maybe, you, you, you know, if you're not here, you're taking care of your system at least five years. Jason, if, uh, the, the, again, the question, the kind of closing question about if somebody has listened to this interview and they say, oh, I'm a, I'm an environmental engineer. I'm a civil engineer. I'm I'm really passionate about improving wastewater systems in the Pacific. Um, I'd love to wrap my mind around some of the challenges that you've discussed, particularly around developing uh, centralized systems. What would you recommend that people do? I'm thinking about, um, for example, uh, in some of the education programs in in uh, Australia, people get masters and then they go and they have to do maybe a six-month project uh, and they maybe they're engineers by by trade or they've worked in engineering and in, in civil engineering in the past and they or chemical engineering and they say well I'd really like to apply some of the skills in the context of the Pacific it sounds like they have some pretty interesting challenges there um, where they're really trying to innovate in terms of reducing electricity mm -hmm. use and, well, and coming up with really clean systems yeah you hit on it right there it's just to be innovative to come out and, and work in this type of area, you have to be able to look at the resources you have, look at the problems you face that you can't change, and and meet those. Um, for example, there are plenty of, of septic options that we could use in, in many areas um, that would work great in other places, but they're not passive systems, which means they have a pump or you need to use electricity. And here, nobody will pay for the electricity because of just the way the culture is. They won't maintain the pump. Um, so you have to look at the situation. You really have to spend your time understanding the culture and what works and what the challenges are, and then apply what you know. So don't just apply what you've been taught. Rethink it based on what you have to deal with. Mm. And, yeah, be willing to understand the constraints of the culture and the constraints of the environment. Right. That goes back to what I said about the, the septic or the on-site systems because most people just assume if the water is going away, it, that's fine because the challenge is usually going away too slow. Mm. So you're, you don't automatically think about the problems that happen when it goes away too fast. That's it. Well, thank you very much. Um, it, and also, is it possible to contact you by email or phone if anybody has any questions and would like to reach out? Sure. Excellent. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great to learn about American Samoa and the, the challenges that you guys have had. And um, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. 
Kini is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Kini connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia Pacific. Visit our website at kini.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.